At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the most important issues of our time. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. We want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today's bonus podcast is a rebroadcast of our monthly seed class, where our seed expert, Bill McDormand, shares some seed wisdom and discusses news and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us that are saving seeds. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the urban farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona, on a very beautiful March day. It was actually cold here today and all right, I've lived here in Phoenix for 51 years, and cold for me is a little different, maybe than up there where you're at, Bill, huh? Yeah, way different, Greg. <laughs> Phoenix well, is a place unto itself. <laughs> well, that's true. And we're, we're here with Bill McDormand. Where are you from, Bill? Tell us about that. Well, organizationally, I'm from the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. I'm the executive director now, and geographically right now, I'm in Cornville, Arizona. Nice. Which is about an hour and a half north of you. Yes. And tonight, this is our monthly seed chat. We do these every month, once a month. We do them live, usually on a Tuesday night, about halfway through the month. And then we actually harvest them off and throw them out on our podcast. The bonus for being here live is you can actually ask us questions. And we have questions from John and Jesse and Katerina from the Czech Republic already. So we'll get to that. JJ and Peoria. So we'll get to that here in just a little while. But tonight, we're going to talk wild seeds. We actually give a seed school online. So if you go to seedschoolonline.com, I'll have to verify that that's the case, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. If you go to seedschoolonline.com, you can actually see our seed school. It's a seven-week online course where you can learn all about seeds. And our most popular episode class is week six. It's the wild seed week, right, Bill? It's always been that way. And that was a real surprise when we started down this path. Mm-hmm. Because of course, most of what we talk about is how to save seeds for food crops. 
Mm-hmm. So when we ventured into talking about wild seeds, all the bells and whistles went off. People are very, very interested. And I think that's really because of the poison American landscape, I'll call it. That many of the people that were drawn to growing their own food, a lot of that was for nutrition and health. And then it just didn't make sense to spray, you know, poisons on their lawns and have a normal landscape around their homes with, you know, way too much lawn and using way too much water and maintenance, really. And so it's of the same mindset. I think that's what I've come to realize is that people that want good food, that want a garden, are also the same people that want medicinal herbs and want to understand the plant life and the world around them. And they want to bring some of that into their yards. And so I think that's the vector for people being interested in wild seeds. Way cool. So what about wild seeds? Well, what we do in the Seed School Online, and this is going to be kind of a shortened version so we can take all your questions. And I just want to say from the beginning that, you know, the real information that you will gather in your life, probably, you know, the best information you'll gather probably is from your own experience, you know, making a lot of mistakes, especially around wild seeds. Yeah, but the next best thing is, yeah, is asking questions, especially local questions about what's happening in your specific location, because there are some general principles, but the real stuff that will get you down the road is stuff that happens right there for you. So please ask questions. It doesn't matter if they're detailed, you know, for your thing only and other people won't care. They're all related in some large way and they're most important to you if they're specific to you. So I just want to get that out of the way. Most of what I ended up teaching in the Seed School Online module is a series of myth busters, you know, preconceptions that I learned over a 30-year period running my own seed company that most of the people that walked in the door or wrote to me, this was before the internet, and then later, you know, faxed me questions and then we finally got email. Most of the American gardeners that came to me believe certain things about wild seeds. And so I found that for them to really be effective going forward, they had to kind of get over some of these preconceptions and look at things in a new and little bit different way. And once that you do that, then you're on your own adventure to make your own mistakes and you can come to some real successes. That's kind of the approach that I ended up taking. One of the things I always tried to do to my customers was have them think about what they really wanted. You know, I had a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I want an organic landscape. Okay, well, that's fine, but it won't necessarily have any wild seeds or native seeds around it. They said, oh, okay, I want a native landscape. And that's a nice place to start a discussion about a landscape in America, but it's got some problems. One of which is that there's very little plant or seed material available in most areas. There are some exceptions, but in most areas to do a completely native landscape. You know, I used to toy with people a little bit. It was so much fun. I'd say, well, so you're going to send your lilacs, you know, and your roses back. And they go, no, no, I love my lilacs. They don't harm anything. You know, they bring me great joy. I love the smell of them. They come every year and everybody has them. They don't seem to be causing any problems. And I'd say, exactly. But they're not native, you know. And so, I mean, people used to come. I ended up calling it the Church of the Native. I mean, all that was the line. Nothing in their yards that wasn't native. 
And that's just a little bit short-sighted at this point. I don't have time to go into all the reasons except that I'm a permaculturist, and I know you are, Greg, and food forests are important to us. Yeah. Also, you know, we can learn to be careful stewards of our landscapes. We're not going to bring any noxious weeds in. Nobody wants to do that. We don't want things that are going to take over or cause problems biologically. There's a lot of information out there about that. But there's just most of the plant life that could probably make your life, your community life, even your wildlife better, may not be native in the way that you're thinking about it. So I just want people to, first of all, get over that preconception. Just open your mind and just remember this one thing. Native landscapes, and that idea is a really great idea, but that's where you start your discussion about your landscape. You want to learn all the native plants you can right around you, the ones in your alley that even could be left in your neighbor's yards. Or if you get outside your cities and you start walking in the parks, you start seeing what's really growing there. Learn all of that. That can all help you tremendously. And it can help get you ready to take care of whatever landscape that you do come up with without, you know, using chemicals or water usually. But don't limit yourself to the kinds of plants that you can use necessarily. Just get way smarter about it. And I think you'll get farther down the road. How many natives do you have in your yard, Greg? I'm just curious. I love your incredibly permacultured suburban teaching laboratory, I'll call it. I mean, I always Uh learn something when I go there. It's an interesting question, don't you think? It is. And you're putting me on the spot. You realize that. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking about it. I mean, you know, you and I are pretty conscious about landscaping. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I want people out there to understand Oh, I'm smiling over here. Yeah, there's a long way to go before you ever get back, you know, in some ways to the natives, especially in the middle of urban areas. I think Bill Allison and Jeff Lawton would agree with us is that maybe our first thing is to minimize our inputs, get rid of all the chemicals, and start growing more food for ourselves. Those are right. high values. Yeah. Well, when you look at the biodiversity that lives here at the urban farm, it is amazing the amount of biodiversity that I've installed in the space. I've been here 29 years now. And for those of you that are out here, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So if you stand on my roof and look 50 miles in all directions, you're going to see houses, if you could see that far. So I am literally in the middle of one of the biggest metropolitan areas in the country, in the U.S. And we probably shouldn't be living here this way, but we are. There's one 4.6 million people that live in the Phoenix metropolitan area. I just want to kind of give you an idea of the urban landscape that I'm living in the middle of. And so going to answer your question. I'm doing it in a roundabout way. I'm clear about that. And I would say that there is one native plant living on the property. (laughs) I would guess that even the weeds aren't native. No. Maybe the mallow is. I don't know if mallow is and lamb's quarter. So I have mallow, lamb's quarter, purslane that are weeds. Dandelions, they can't be native to the desert. But those are all kinds of weeds that live on the property. I'm guessing that none of those are native. The one native is a mesquite tree. I have a mesquite tree that lives on the back part of my go. property that's an edible mesquite. And the biodiversity here is huge. I'll bet you if we did a biodiversity survey of the urban farm, right? you know, there's hundreds of different kinds of plants mostly edible that i planted over the past almost three decades here yeah yeah we've never really talked about this is great no yeah we haven't (laughs) and mostly and you know i get a lot of flack from people especially our friends down in tucson it's like well why are you growing fruit trees in the desert and why are you growing high water plants in the desert and for me why are there 4.6 million people living here in the desert and we either have to ship the food in or we grow it ourselves and i am a big proponent of spending the money on water not shipping 
Yes. Yeah, you're in a pretty good situation there. And if we used the water and captured the water, you know, studies by the Watershed Management Group in Tucson have showed that Tucson could actually grow a good portion of the food for the people that live in that basin if they just captured their rainwater and put it to intensive food growing. You hear things like that. It is. These are big questions. So let's get back to wild seeds for just a second and a few of these myths, and then let's open it up to questions because I think we stirred up a pot here. Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, myth number one, you can't put back your native landscape. For those of you that are moving into new areas, you know, and this is the blade and build, you know, Arizona, right? We're just always moving into untouched or relatively native places. And this is a mantra throughout the Western United States, not as prevalent in the East or in the South where areas have original forests were cut down or whatever. But I think the same thing applies is that it's difficult or if not impossible to try to put back a native landscape if you've disturbed it or destroyed it. People used to come to me and say, well, you know, I, I had to destroy five acres to put up my million dollar home, you know, outside Sun Valley, Idaho. And now I want to hire you to put it back. And I would say, I can't. And they say, well, they would start whispering then and say something like, yeah, well, we don't care what it costs. And they really didn't. You know, they were part of the dot-com boom or something else. And they're really conscious people. But the truth was, nobody knows how to do that. There may be a hundred year succession, natural succession in the arid west, you know, with 10 inches of rainfall or less. That landscape moves really slowly from the pioneer species that first come in and start to get the soil ready to then the shrubs and then to whatever climax community was there. And it's just like, it's impossible, you know, without management, huge money and time and energy, you know, to try to even get one to look like it's totally native. And so lesson number one, if you've got anything resembling wild or native around your property or a place that you manage, don't touch Touch it. <laughs> until right. you really, really understand it, until you're there for a lot of years, you'll just save a lot of trouble. All right. Every time you disturb a native landscape, you're doing what I call opening up Pandora's box. You're starting a new plant succession. And change is always most dynamic at the beginning of that succession. And that's where, you know, the pioneer species come in. And we, as you said, Greg, we know most of those as weeds, right? That's your land right. order and your dandelions and your, those are the things that come in. A lot of them are stickery in the West. Some are poisonous. I mean, they're usually the plants we don't want to be around much. Now, that being said, they do great things for your soil. Somebody told me once that yellow sweet clover plant that can just be horrific to try to get rid of when it has a bloom in a disturbed even parking lot. Each one of those plants can have 25,000 miles of root hairs, you know, and it's got nodules what? that are fixing not yeah, fixing wow. nitrogen. It's this huge biological impact. And then as soon as it's done its job, then the other plants can come back in. And remember it was disturbed. And so nature's trying to heal over the cut, the wound and try to, you know, get it back to the stage where it can use it again in the most efficient ways. And so, you know, that's the narrative there. Yeah. Then a corollary myth. People say, oh, well, you know, I've got this yard or I've got this backyard or I've got, I'm going to put in a garden. And so first thing I need to do is get new topsoil. I got to bring in some soil. It doesn't look like what I know topsoil to be. So I'm going to bring some in. And all I can tell you is in, you know, for 28 years, I run my small seed company before that was part of a nonprofit and we had a garden supply center. I have never ever seen the topsoil brought in to be in the end better and in most cases it's a problem because you're bringing weed seed and all sorts of other unknowns into your yard nobody that just has a topsoil service has great topsoil unless you have gone out to the exact place where it's coming from and inspected it personally 
I would never let any of that stuff into my yard. Time and energy-wise, just build in compost. Get your worms. Do whatever you can to turn whatever you have, even if it's a gravel parking lot or a clay basin. You know, Jake Mace, I think, talked about that, you know? Oh, yeah. You get the mulch. Get the mulch. Get your routines. You can turn anything you have into great topsoil. So get to work. Whatever you have to do is easier and better in the long run, in my opinion. Another corollary idea is that, oh, well, I'm going to have to spray. I'm going to have to get rid of all these weeds or whatever's there so we can start fresh and clean. Total myth. Biocides are not necessary. What they're really doing now, we've learned, is they're killing the microflora in the soil. Exactly. Remember what I said about don't disturb the soil if you don't have to? Mm -hmm. Every time you spray, you're disturbing the soil. You're starting over. You're inviting in new noxious weeds. It's like this treadmill, the pesticide treadmill. It's just a waste. There are methods and techniques. I think you'll agree with me. Just get rid of that stuff. There's just no reason to. And if your neighbors are spraying or if you're having problems, go to a website. It's Northwest Coalition or Center now for Alternatives to Pesticides, pesticide.org. And those folks have safety data sheets. You can go to their information sheet on everything. And you can read up about them and print out those sheets and hand it to your neighbor. And trust me, they won't spray again. Oh my God, that's a great idea. Yeah, well, the NCAP sheets are compiled from data worldwide. Europe Uh especially is way better at having objective knowledge about the chemicals that we use. Whereas if you ask your pesticide applicator for a safety data sheet, and they've got to carry them by law, those sheets are actually made up by the pesticide manufacturers. Right. And even if you look at them closely, they never say they're safe. You ever notice that? Nobody ever calls these things safe. They can't. Legally, they can't prove that. And so anyway, that's the thing. Don't use your biocides. Another myth I heard over and over again was that I'm going to use wild seeds because they're organic, and I'm an organic gardener. If you buy wild seeds commercially, almost none of them are organic. Let me tell you why. The tolerances for weed seed and those kinds of seeds is so tiny that guys can lose whole crops of those seeds if there's even one noxious weed in it. They are the people that spray the most. Wow. I'm sorry. It's just how it is. Yeah, I didn't know that. On the other hand, if you're getting seeds or gathering your own in the wild from either Forest Service or BLM land, those guys spray more herbicides and chemicals now than almost anybody. You have to go and check. Our national forests now are not organic. And so if you want wildflower seeds that are organic, grow your own. <laughs> That's about all I can say because there are very, very few. And if you're an entrepreneur and you want to march into the future with a really successful business idea, I've been saying this for several years, start the first company that sells certified organic wildflower and native grass seeds because I don't know of one out there. All right? And then I'll just leave you with one other myth. Uh And I hope these help people if you get into wild seeds. The other thing people think about wild seeds is that because they're from the wild where they take care of themselves, once I bring them into my yard... I can just sprinkle them out and they'll take care of themselves. That wild seeds need little or no care. I'm almost quoting exactly a product that came out. Oh, this was probably 20 years ago. It was by a company called Norm Thompson. And I don't know, the older folks may remember, it was called Meadow in a Can. Remember Meadow in a Can? It was the largest selling mail order product the first year it came out. Nationwide, they sold hundreds of thousands of these cans of wildflower seeds. And it said right on the can, oh, sprinkle these seeds in your yard and have carefree color forever. 
you know? And it's like the opposite is true, Greg. Wild seeds change. You know, remember what I said? If you've cleaned out a place in your yard, you've disturbed the soil, plant succession is always more dynamic in the beginning, and now you're sprinkling in 20 or 30 wildflower seeds. This is what people do with these wildflower mixes or meadows, or even if you use individual ones. And they're off to the races trying to dominate and figure out how to live there. I used to call it Yugoslavia. Everything you put wild in your garden wants to win, usually. And so you may be starting a mess, a noxious weed mess. In about 20 western states, there are plants on the noxious weed list in those states that got there from wildflower mixes that people planted, that got out of control, not only in their yards, but in, you know, got across the street and into agricultural fields. So you want to be careful. That's not no maintenance. That's not taking care of themselves. That's like now you've got to be involved to keep it from spreading. Yeah. The other side of that is that we still have wildflowers out there that we have not been domesticated, things like Indian paintbrush. Why? Because they're just difficult to grow. They don't work very easily. And so, and I know that about a lot of the succulents and the cactus from the desert. You can't just harvest seeds and throw them down and expect them to go. You need to be involved. So lesson is wild seeds need more attention usually and more care, especially at the beginning if you want them to work. So get over that myth that just because they're wild, they'll take care of themselves. That's my little sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. Well, I got a bunch of questions over here, so I want to just start tossing them out to you and let's see what happens. And you kind of touched on Danielle's question a little bit. Danielle from Cloquet, New Mexico, Minnesota, sorry. What regulations do I need to know about if I want to sell wild seeds in the U.S.? The number one rule you need to look at probably is look to your own state first and for their noxious or restricted seed list. Every state has one now, and you can find them on the internet. And the rules in a state usually are that you cannot, you know, collect, exchange, or sell the seeds of plants listed on that list. And so if you're in Minnesota or back east somewhere, I can't tell you what seeds that you're not going to be able to sell in your state. Now, if you're going to sell out of state, to other states, you need to go and check their lists also because it's theoretically illegal for you to sell, even though nobody from Colorado is ever going to come you know, to your state and arrest you or fine you. It's just not good practice for you to sell a seed that may be okay where you are, but is on the Colorado noxious weed list because it could cause problems. I mean, the definition of a noxious weed is it's a plant that causes economic damage to agriculture. In most states, that's the definition. Some have broadened it a bit now, but that's how the whole thing got started. And so you don't want to go causing problems. I mean, if you want to get into trouble as a seed company or a seeds person, that's the fastest way to do it. And people will lose respect for you. So that's the number one law. You know, some states have other laws about you might need a seed dealer's license. You might need a seed packager's license. Usually those things don't apply to people that do it on a really small scale. So I don't know what scale you're on, but definitely check the noxious weed list. Perfect. Richard from Cottonwood, Arizona says, I have a one quarter acre portion in Cottonwood, Arizona. I'd like to set up in native plants and flowers to beautify the lot. Could I meet with you sometime and get information? I'm a complete novice and have no background, so I really need some help. That's a good question. Yes, you can. 
And if you want to email me at bill at rockymountainseeds.org, I'll get back to you. But let me dispel another myth. Just because you're a complete novice and have no idea what you're doing, that actually might be the best place to start. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that might be a good thing here. Yeah, that may be. You know, it's the preconceptions that people bring to this that really make it hard. You know, I want this, I want that, or whatever. You know, if, if you're open-minded and willing to allow some time to go by, you know, I can at least point out the kinds of strategies that you might have in mind that will require more time, energy, and money than others. All right? You can get whatever you want probably if you paid enough money, except for a completely na undisturbed native landscape, yeah. which I said, you can even have that, but it might take 20, 40, or 60 years you know, well, to but, evolve in this area. You know, yeah, yeah, well, and really what's native and, right. you know, that's a big part of the challenge is figuring out what truly that is. So, Did you so, hear what happened here in Cottonwood? Let me just add a little addendum. Please. There are some agaves growing in Yavapai County here near Tuzigut, an archaeological ruins. And for years, everyone has thought that they were wild, that they were just native here. Upon inspection, carefully, in just the last few years, they've discovered that they're actually cultivated agaves, that they were part of a farming practice for ancient peoples here that goes, well, we don't know how far back it goes. And they've actually renamed them into two different new species of agave. Wow. So you think they're native? No, they've just been around for a thousand years, you know. That's what I was talking about a minute ago yeah. when I said, what's really yeah. native? Yeah, well, they're not, we don't know. You know, we thought they were. And so yeah. those are the kinds of problems that come up when you talk about native. Humans have had such a profound impact on the arid west that it's really difficult to tell in some places. And it may be that the configuration of the native plants that was here is gone forever because some of the species are gone because of overgrazing and lack of fire and all the other things that we've done to these landscapes. So this is kind of off of the wild seed, but this is a great question. Jesse from Alcalde says, can you talk about seed storage in seed libraries? Well, I don't know. If you've got a specific seed library, a specific question about storage, I could help you even more. But generally, seeds in seed libraries are fine and will last for decades probably, most of them, especially in the arid west. I mean, if you're in Florida, you're in Louisiana, you're on the California coast where you get foggy weather, then you may have a little bit you know, more to pay attention to. But Dr. Bruce Bugby at Utah State University got a contract from NASA to study what it would take to store seeds for a manned space flight to Mars. And so he did very careful scientific studies about temperature, especially, and storage. And what he found, which surprised me when I first heard about it, was that seeds store pretty well for a long time, most of them, until they get above 80 degrees Fahrenheit. You just don't want to leave your seeds above 80 for very long. And so what that means is that sitting in a library that's at room temperature in the arid mountain west for the humidity is as dry as it is, and a lot of them in seed libraries, regular libraries, are using the old card catalogs. If you're doing those things, then you're meeting really high standards for storing seeds, which is they're cool, they're below 80, they're dry, you know, the humidity probably never goes above 20%, and they're dark. They're not in the direct sunlight. And if you'll do those, I think the seeds will be fine. And, you know, there's 500 seed libraries now, and you rare, I've never heard of people saying that the seeds, all the seeds in a seed library were dead because they were stored wrong. Perfect. So we've got Katarina from the Czech Republic. I'm just going to read this 
question. It's a little bit sure. long, but not too bad. Hello, Bill. I have a question about seed germination. Have been interested in medicinal plants. Tried several techniques, including stratification, simulating winter by fridge, exposure to outside freeze, leaving the seeds on cotton to sprout and then planting and direct sowing. There is so much to learn. Please, is there a book or other resources on germination that you can recommend? You know, the best book I've seen, and you might be able to get it, you could probably get it on Amazon. And I haven't checked for a while, but it, it was a hardback book. It was called Seeds of Wild Land Plants. I can look while I'm talking to you. Why don't you talk um, and I'll look. Okay. Yeah. It's a, Seeds from Wildland Plants. I used to have it on my website a long time ago. Anyway, what it is, a couple that spent years surveying all the literature that was out there in the world about germinating seeds for wildland plants and had all the stories there. It didn't seem like they did a lot of testing themselves, but it was a really nice encyclopedia and another place to check. You know, and it got into some of the more exotic ways, weak acid baths that have been found to work, especially for some tree seeds, things like that. The only thing that I could add that I would try first if I were you, I mean, some of the seeds for what we call medicinal plants are just tough. For that reason, I think I had a medicinal herb garden with about 100 different herbs in it. I would say 20 to 30% of those plants did not come from seeds. I just didn't even expect it. Things like comfrey, things like the mint, peppermint, true peppermint does not come from seed. It's been hybridized. Things like that, even if I got the seeds to germinate they wouldn't give me the plant that i wanted but for seeds that were collected in the wilds in the northern latitudes that needed some sort of cold treatment sometimes just putting them in the refrigerator or cold storage was not enough and i learned by mistake one time that after i had wild geranium seeds in a refrigerator they, and they were i was stratifying them and i did it for more than enough time i actually I did it at different lengths of time and nothing worked I planted the seeds. They were in flats. I waited several weeks. Nothing came up. The whole experiment was a bust. I needed the room. So what I actually did was throw the flats away. You know, I didn't really throw them away, but I put them out back in my warehouse. And this is in Idaho in March. And so it's at 6,000 feet, the mountains of Idaho. Nighttime temps were still dipping into the 20s, most nights, 30s, even on the warm nights. And then it would, they would get up to 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s during the day during that time of year. Well, a week of fluctuating temperatures in a natural setting like that outside behind my warehouse all stacked up is what it took to get them all to germinate. And since then, I've done some research, and this is not unusual. So it's not just that you need moist or you need a one set of conditions to get the seeds. What you need is something that mimics nature. Once those geraniums got frozen down to 20 degrees and then back up to 50 during the day and then down to 25 or 30 at night and then back up to 55 or 60, once they went through that, whammo, some switch got turned on that I had not turned on. So I'll just give you, that's my best trick for it. Perfect. And so did you find? It's called Collecting, Processing, and Germinating Seeds of Wildland Plants by James A. Young, and it's widely available on Amazon. There you go. That's the best book I've found for off-type stuff. So there yeah. you go. There's your answer. All right.
Perfect. You know, there's a couple more questions here coming in, but before we get too far along, I want to talk about this movie. I had Vivian DeCourcy track me down. She did this movie, and we interviewed her for the podcast on March 31st, episode 340. And the subject of the movie was a woman named Mary Reynolds. We interviewed her and released that on April 3rd. And I know that when you and Belle saw that, you got really excited about it, actually went out and rented the movie. I actually rented the movie as well. They're talking a lot about how do we plug back into nature and this movie called Dare to be Wild. So it is on Netflix. I highly recommend that you go find it. Let's talk about that for a minute, Bill. Well, it's just such a classic story. What I started with were all these preconceptions that us as modern analytical creatures have uh-huh. about nature and our interface with it. And you got to get rid of a lot of those, you know. I was dealing primarily with clients that came to me in an area where people lived that could afford to try to make their landscapes around their homes more wild. Uh-huh. Uh, poor Mary Reynolds thought big, boy. She wanted to take a native landscape to the Chelsea Flower Show in England. And that's like the center of the storm. I mean, that was right. the last place you would ever think that you could make a dent. Almost every yard in America is the way it is because of that stuffy, over-thought-about English landscape, right, that we try to this day to apply to places even like Nevada, you know, with their lawn and the kinds of shrubs or whatever. Everything's manicured and taken care of. That whole idea, you know, ground zero for that is the Chelsea Flower Show. I went one year. Wow, really? Yeah, it's on two acres. On any given day for the five or six days the show's open, there are 90,000 people there looking at these perfectly coiffed gardens. And these people are come from all over the world. If you're a serious horticulturist, that's where you go. That's the pinnacle of the pinnacle. Poor Mary's got this idea. Oh, I'm going to go to the Chelsea Flower Show, and I'm going to pitch them on doing a native landscape there. Yeah, let's see how well this will work. It's an <laughs> impossibility, and that's what makes the movie so much fun. Yeah, She's just naive, and she even says that, I think, in your podcast because you interview her the right. week after. Yes. Wow. Those two podcasts really were spectacular, Greg. Congratulations. Yeah, so to tell a little bit of, more about her story, Mary, she grew up on a farm, and it was a very manicured kind of farm. And she realized as she was growing up that, you know, nature and traveling back to nature and figuring out how to work with nature could be a more effective way. So then the story of the movie is that she actually applies for and gets into, I'm guessing she was early 30s, and she applies for and gets into the Chelsea Flower Show and she won. So yeah, not only yeah, not only did she was she accepted, which was an impossibility. She was too young, right. she was too inexperienced, and her idea was totally out of the box. Right. What box, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. If you want a native landscape, just go out into the wild. This is the Chelsea Flower Show. We're serious (laughs) here about landscapes, you know. I can imagine what she was up against. It still astounds me that she pulled it off. And I think it was like 2002 or 2003 that she actually won. This is in somewhat recent history. Well, I I figure, Greg, I was there two years before that. I think I went in either 99 or 2000. Wow. (laughs) So urbanfarmpodcast.com, and that's episode 340 and 341. Go listen to them. They're amazing. Absolutely amazing. What Mary brought to it, one of the underlying themes of this is that Mary's from Ireland, and she's Celtic. And she has an interface with the meadows and the wildlands that she grew up in. 
that borders on fantasy, what you know, modern rational landscape and, and gardeners would call fantasy. You know that there are fairies. There's energy in your landscape. And what Mary did then was find a language to interface with that through her Celtic origins. And for me, that was just as fascinating a reason to watch the movie. So I think we see, I have colleagues that I teach with and gardeners that I have huge amounts of respect for here that are biodynamic. You know, that's sort of their vector in to this, you know, larger cycles, we'll call them, that aren't normally used in modern agriculture or landscaping. And in her own way, using her own background and heritage, Mary brought those in through her Celtic traditions. And for me, it was just like a whole new playground and language to try to get to know. And I think that's, in the end, what fascinated the Chelsea Flower Show judges, is that, you know, this is part of England's heritage also. So much of it was affected. We are all affected by the Celtic ancestry that has gone all over the world and changed our language and the way we look at things. In a way, it was like coming back home, you know, come back home to the native, come back home to these larger cycles and traditions and learn how to live where we are. And I just loved her language for that. Yeah, she did great. That is for sure. And it was so much fun interviewing her. She is a rock star. Well, well you know, I heard that Vivian's interview was great and it was all oh, about yeah. making the movie, you know, yeah. and her faith to do that and meeting Mary or whatever. And so I naturally went, oh, I would love to hear an interview with Mary. And then I'm, I've got my little <laughs> podcast, and I, and I look and go, there she is, just up. <laughs> so i got to hear her, too. So, again, congratulations on doing that. God, that was nice. great. Thanks. So I'm going to throw this out there. I throw it out there all the time. I'm always looking for great stories to tell on the podcast. And I know you're out there. I hear you thinking that maybe not me. I've just done some cool things, but no, not me. So I just invite you to shut that voice off in your head and say, you know what? My story would make a great story on the Urban Farm podcast. And I want you to send me an email, greg at urbanfarm.org, and say, here's my story. I want to tell it on the podcast. Because what we're doing on this podcast is we're building stories out there that people can relate to or sharing stories out there that people can relate to that lights a fire inside of our listeners. You know, I really invite you to jump in and shoot me an email and let's talk, man. I want to tell your story. You've helped so many share theirs. Michael Abelman, Penny Livings, so many of your podcasts. I recommend them all the time to people. Those stories out there, you're right. This is the currency of our time. Right. And now we have the technology to do it. And you've been so good about following through and making sure that a system is set up to capture them. Just from my own experience, folks, take advantage of Greg's passion about this while we have it. Get your stories down and find the stories yeah. around you. And what did you just tell me earlier this evening? The one millionth download now? We hit a million Three. downloads about two weeks ago. That's phenomenal. Yeah. This is going to have an impact. Yeah, it yeah, does. you should. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. But here, and here's the other thing that I want to throw out to you as well, Bill, and everybody out there. Do you know who Kunal Sampat is or Barbara Masoner, Zach Brooks, Ben Hartman? Well, you know, you mentioned people that we might have heard of. The people I just mentioned, you know, they're new on the scene. They're doing cool work. These are people that were getting their stories out. Yes. Well, that's great. Yeah. You know, and I'll bet, wow. I'm in awe. How are we going to get enough time to listen to all the podcasts? How many now have you done? Well, we've released, as of today, we've released about 360, and I think I just recorded our 381st or 82nd show oh, in two and a half years. Wow. I'm having fun, man. I love, love, love telling, hearing people's stories, letting them share their stories. You keep so. this up and the president will come. <laughs> Won't be this president probably, but okay, good. You know, Thank that's you. what <laughs> 
That's what happened to that guy who does a comedy podcast from his garage in L.A., Obama, in the limo one day. It was one of his favorite podcasts, and he goes, I want to be on that podcast. And he actually <laughs> went into the garage and sat down for an hour with him. And wow. I thought, well, you know, this is the modern world we live in. We can all be yeah. connected in new ways and uh, teach no each other. So, no so that's great. I got a question from John here from Ridgefield, Washington. I think I've seen you on here before, John. He says, I have a couple of butternut squashes that are in the garage and didn't get eaten. They did not freeze during the winter. Should I bury the whole squash to get plants this year? Or do I need to open them up and get the seeds out? You know, it's just more efficient and easy to open them up and get the seeds out. And if they're not rotten, you can still eat the squash. Usually we recommend that people, after you harvest a squash, a winter squash like that, to let it cure, is the word we use, for two or three weeks. And a garage is a great place to do that. And in two or three weeks, the seeds will finish germinating. I mean, if you bury the whole thing, it may be that the cotyledons can't get through the skin. There's all sorts right. of stuff. You know, I would break it open, get the seeds out, clean them up a little bit, and plant them where you want. Take some down to your local seed library, hand a few to some friends just in case something happens to your backyard. And so you can get them out there in the neighborhood. But butternuts are great. And they're open pollinated. You should get more butternuts, really good ones. Yeah. That should be good. Beautiful. All right, we got one more question here from Katerina from the Czech Republic. By the way, Katerina, my mom is from the Czech Republic. She was born and spent a little bit of her time there before she moved to Canada. So Katerina says, essential oils. I've heard of people using pure plant essential oils in certain dilutions to treat their plants, to heal, prevent disease, Mm. plant homeopathy, support the plant's well-being. Do you know anything about this? and recommend any literature on the topic, maybe? Wow. No. I don't know about it as far as sort of a positive fertilizer or medicinal use for them. Of course, I've used essential oils for insect repellents. Oh, yes. Especially things like citronella, you know, the tropical, the really aromatic tropical grasses, lemongrass and citronella are great for that sort of stuff. But go for it. I just love how we're uncovering all plants love plants. We probably have everything we need everywhere we are. And so learning how to distill out essential oils or press them out of what are their plants. I was on Crete and walked into an herb store and the man had uh, grew all the herbs just on the outside of town and had a little shop in the middle on the busiest street in town. And that's what he was doing. He had all sorts of different kinds of herbs and oils and tinctures and soaps and lotion for all sorts of things. And I just wish I had a whole nother life to, to dive into. <laughs> right, exactly. So use the internet, use your friends. If you have specific questions, again, you can email me. If you're going to be down in Greece or can go to Crete, I'll give you the name of the herb place that I found there's a fascinating place to visit but there's lots of them good luck with that cool we're going to take a final question here from joseph thank you i didn't pay him for this joseph says he's from lofthouse.com let's see northeast (laughs) great salt lake how can we find more about you bill seed school we'll talk about that and other activities you have going on this summer wow well rockymountainseeds.org is our website We're four part-time people that have helped form the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. We've got about 284 what we call seed stewards that have signed up in the network. And these are people that promise to grow and and save and share at least one thing. Many of them are doing way more than that. Probably the best 
seed storage. One of the handful of, of the best seed storage in the Western United States is Joseph Lofthouse, the man who just asked that question. So ah. good evening, Joseph, and thank you. <laughs> and I would Google up Joseph Lofthouse and see his seed list. If you're looking for some really incredible things, Joseph trying to find that stuff that will grow well for him in Utah right where he lives, and he's a brilliant breeder and seed saver. And so thank you for that, Joseph. We've got Seed School coming up in Vermont in August. If you want a Seed School a day in your town, let us know. You know, we need good partners and good food for the day. And we've just finished one up in Flagstaff, Arizona. It was really great, but we do that. Most of all, you know, what we're getting feedback now on is our seed school online, which is where Greg started this whole discussion tonight. In 2010, we started seed school. It was originally a 10-day program. We shortened it up to six days, done a number of those. Then we got these calls to do seed school in a day. We shortened it down even more. We probably made over 50 presentations now over the last eight years, graduated more than a 1,000 students, and we took the best of all of that and put it into the Seed School online. It's really tight. I don't know how you could get more information in a shorter time. And now you can download the things and do them at your own pace, can't you, Greg? Oh, yeah. You can get to that through RockyMountainSeeds.org or more directly at SeedSchoolOnline.com. Perfect. Don't you have a Seed School teacher training coming up? We do have a Seed School teacher training. The fire was lit under you tonight. You're going to have to act quickly because it starts this coming Sunday Wow! at the Posner Center in Denver. But we still have time to sign people up. And it's going to be an incredible group of people that come from all over the United States that want to devote six days to figuring out how they can help get the word out about teaching people. I figure there's 150 million American gardeners out there that don't save their own seeds yet. And so this is a huge, in my mind, problem, our opportunity. And we're going to figure out how to do it together. And so we'll teach you the best of everything we've learned in our 50 programs. And you'll learn from the other people that are coming there also. And most of the week will be practice. You'll get to dream up new scenarios for how to deliver this material. And you'll get to practice doing it. So if you want a seed school teacher training, we usually do one or two of those a year. Our goal is to get as much of this information out so that in the end, will reach the mission of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, which is seeds for the Rocky Mountain West from the Rocky Mountain West, where we're all growing and saving and sharing our own seeds again. The way we were, you know, before World War II. <laughs> we don't right. have to go back that far. Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you so very much for joining us again. And I love our monthly chats. Your website again is? RockyMountainSeedsPlural.org. And I want to thank you, Greg, and I want to thank my wife, Belle Starr, for bringing up the idea about doing Wild Seeds tonight. She's the one who brought the Dare to be Wild movie into my life, and boy, this has been a great show. She's also the one who makes sure that the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance gets all its work done behind the scenes. (laughs) Yeah, that is the case. Thank you, Belle. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, everybody, for choosing to spend some time with us. I greatly appreciate it. Once again, we do these once a month. You can go to urbanfarm.org on our calendar there, and you can see them. As I always like to say, thank you, Farm Out, and I will catch you on the flip side. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. We want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. 
Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today's bonus podcast is a rebroadcast of our monthly seed class where our seed expert Bill McDormand shares some seed wisdom and discusses news and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us that are saving seeds. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.